Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Dory Clark, who is uh, the author of the most re- her most recent book, which is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And our conversations, you know, we're going to talk about that. We're going to expand into uh, many different things as well. But I'm so grateful to have her on the podcast today. And if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do want to let you know a couple of things. The first is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because we truly want to create a place where you can belong. And here's what I know, because this is true of me and my experiences. If there are places to where I don't feel like I can engage um, wholly, or completely, or bring my questions, or talk about certain things, it's hard for me to feel like I belong there. And that's what we want to do here, is we want to create a place to where you could bring your questions, you could bring your topics, and we can engage in respectful uh, dialogue as well. And that leads me to the second one, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100% or not. And in some cases, it's learning from other people's failures and other times it's learning from their successes or what they learned uh, that went well or went right. And the last one is that we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of what that thing is, because everything has something that it can teach us. Everyone, everything could teach us about something. We can learn about something from everything. And today, who we're learning from, and one of the things that we're learning about is uh, Dory Clark and her book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And I'm so glad that we were finally able to make this conversation uh, happen. It was originally scheduled for last year, and now we were able to get connected, and uh, here we are today. And if you have something or Uh, someone that you would love to talk with or uh, learn about here on the podcast. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you there. Or if you just have something that you're really excited that you're learning about, hit me up there as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Dory and then we will jump right into this conversation. Dory Clark is a consultant and keynote speaker who teaches executive education at Duke University's uh, Fuqua School of Business. I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, But here we go. And uh, also teaches at Columbia, uh, yeah, Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. She is the author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You and stand out. The New York Times has described Clark as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Her books have been translated into 11 languages and you can learn. Uh, and if you're interested from her, you know, we'll link to all, or we'll have all the links for the show notes, her websites, all of that stuff in the show notes. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Dory Clark. Well, Dory, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Hey, Caleb. I'm really glad to be here with you. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you about many different things. One of those is uh, your new uh, book, which came out called The Long Game, 
Uh, but before we get into that, one of the questions that I love asking people time to time is I would love to hear from you. What is capturing your imagination or your attention right now? Oh, boy. Well, I just I just got back from San Francisco and I gave a talk for the Long Now Foundation, which is a really cool organization focused on hyper long term thinking. And so uh, partially inspired by that, there's a new biography of the founder of the Long Now Foundation, which uh, Stuart Brand, uh, that was written by a reporter named John Markoff. And so I'm in the midst of reading that right now. Stuart Brand is also famous as the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, which was super influential uh, in the baby boomer counterculture. Uh, so reading about that has been very interesting for me. Mm. What's standing out to you about it so far? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that is really interesting. I mean, uh, Stuart was really a, a polymath and just somebody who was insatiably curious. And he also was somebody that was interested in the counterculture, involved in the counterculture, but just a little bit of a skeptic about it. You know, there was there were some people, there were plenty of people back in the day that sort of found like one thing and then almost tried to treat it like a cult and, and got like a little too into it. And Stuart, you know, and, and this, this had consequences in some ways, but he held himself aloof from most things. You know, he was kind of a part of it, but he wasn't a devotee of it. And I think that in some ways that gave him enough distance to be able to see what was beneficial about a given movement or a given idea without buying into it so thoroughly that he essentially became uncritical or became brainwashed by it. Hmm. Anything else standing out to you right now, just in terms of things, you know, that you're wondering about or learning about? The other thing that I've been on a little bit of a binge about is reading books about futurism and about sort of how do you, how do you predict the future? That's something that has been very interesting to me, uh, certainly since the pandemic, which, you know, I had missed. I didn't really yeah. think that it was going to become the thing that it did. Uh, also, you know, a lot of people were super surprised that Russia actually did invade Ukraine. Um, many people thought that it was a bluff. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't purport to know enough about it to have really had a firm opinion of it. But I mean, I thought, okay, well, it's plausible they'll involve, uh, they'll invade. But my friends who are Russian are like, oh my God, this is crazy. How could this have happened? And, you know, just like this sort of blow mind blowing thing. So, I mean, it's obvious that um, there's a lot of things we really can't predict effectively. So I've been reading a bunch of books about that. And probably the one that has stayed with me the most is one that came out about a decade ago called The Next 100 Years by George Friedman. And he's a... Uh, sort of geopolitical futurist, and he yeah. attempts to predict the next hundred years, which is ambitious. So I I, ad I admire the chutzpah there. Yeah. Have you, uh, I if I remember correctly, I think he also wrote like, I think it's called The Calm Before the Storm. Have you read uh, that? I haven't read that one, but I believe that that's correct. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I found out about George and uh, I'm, I'm very interested in learning about the future as well and to learn someone from him um i'd be curious what what stood out uh, whether it be from you know from george or even just your your dive into learning about you know forecasting and predicting the future and futurism um what stood out to you in that well you know one one thing that was that was slightly reassuring but really interesting is that 
whether you are on the right or the left, it seems like pretty much everybody these days is like, you know, America's in the crapper. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's terrible. Like, you know, okay, we're our, our, our civil, you know, our golden moment of civilization is done. Uh, everything's passed. We have intractable political differences. You know, everything's wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like that's the one thing that people can agree on is, is like we're effed. Uh, <laughs> but George Friedman actually is like the one person that's like, no, guys, it's actually really good. And I'm like, oh, really? There's like one person who thinks that? That's incredible. Um, but he, fascinatingly, I mean, he goes back to these first principles, which, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think it is interesting. We always like to sort of set ourselves apart, you know, oh, it's so modern now, it's so different now. But he says, look, at the end of the day, and this is so true for poor Ukraine, it's like, are you invadable? Who can take you? And he says, America is pretty non-invadable because we've got oceans on two sides. Canada's not going to invade us. Mexico is not, at least for any time soon, in a position to invade us. We're pretty secure. So based on that, we're in a little bit of a catbird seat. So he believes that for the next hundred years, America is going to be continuing to be a, a massive ascendant power. And we haven't even begun to uh, to hit our stride yet. So I, I thought that was quite interesting. I hope he's right. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about, you know, you're, you're learning about futurism right now, which does have to do a little bit with like the long game and, and everything. And so I would be curious to hear your thoughts um, and this is more of like, generally, how do you go about whenever you're learning about something, figuring out, okay, it is now time to incorporate what I, what I am learning or what I've learned into content that I actually talk about? Oh, you know, I, I don't have any sort of formal process exactly. I think mostly it's, it's for me, a question of stocking up on things that I think are interesting. And then sometimes, I guess, typically you know, where, where things sort of start to make their incursions would be in like Q and a, you know, people mm -hmm. will sort of ask you a, an adjacent, slightly random question. And so you're forced to think about, well, you know, what, what do I think about this new angle or this new scenario? And then just come stuff comes to mind based on what you've read and you're making connections and, you know, you might tell an anecdote or relate a story or something like that. And I think that's how it, sort of makes makes its way in. I mean, for instance, um, you know, with, with George Friedman, I, one of the things that I think is most interesting in his book, The Next 100 Years, is he talks about different countries that he thinks will become very geopolitically important. And uh, Turkey is one of them as sort of the bridge between the Middle East and, uh, and you know, in, in Asia and Europe. And that's maybe not surprising, but I think it's, it's interesting. One that was quite interesting was Poland. He thinks Poland is going to be sort of a, a big thing, again, because of its geographical um, reach and sort of where it is vis-a-vis -vis Russia and the European bloc. And also, he believes that Mexico is really going to rise in power and influence quite dramatically. So, you know, anytime any of those countries come up, um, I just think it's such a, like a fun fact, an interesting thing. I'll probably be like, oh, well, do you know that George Friedman thinks they're going to be singularly important in the next hundred years? So, you know, I, I think it's really just a process of association there. I'm curious, Caleb, what, what are you reading? What are you into these days? Oh, man, I, uh, man, I am 
one of, one of the subjects that I am particularly interested in learning about is critical thinking right now of how do you become a critical thinker? And so um, I think by the time that this episode has just come out, um, I've had, I've had, I finally discovered somebody who has written a lot about critical thinking and her name is Julie Bogart. Um, and she talks about how to raise uh, critical thinking kids. Um, and so I think for me, that's one of the things of just evaluating, um, the, the ideas that people are talking about and not just, uh, not just them handing, you know, not just like eating them up, but going like, okay, what, what is behind this idea? What is informing this idea? Um, and I think the other thing that, um, that you were talking about is uh, just this idea of history as well, of just trying to get a better perspective on our on our national history, on our global history, um, because it's just fascinating to me of how much things just keep repeating <laughs> themselves. Like it, it, it plays out in a different context. You know, obviously today is, uh, there's a lot, you know, technology, all of that stuff that is different, um, but all of the tensions are fairly familiar and they're just playing themselves out in new different ways. So those are some of the things uh, yeah, that I'm yeah, curious absolutely. about right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love to ask you, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, and again, I'm just drawing this connection of, you know, futurism, the long game, all of that stuff. Um, that does not seem to be the tendency for the bride, for the broader society and culture and people to even think about, um, to even think about the, the long game. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on why is it so, or maybe, maybe you disagree. Maybe it's like, yep, no, we do. Uh, we do focus on the long game, but I would love to hear your thoughts on maybe what draws us to the short game as opposed to the long game. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there's a number of factors, of course. I mean, the, the first one at a really simple level is human nature, uh, which is, you know, I think, I think literally for all of us, no matter how long-term oriented we are, if you have a choice between a thing now and a thing later, you probably want the thing now. I mean, that's actually logical because there's a lot of things that can happen between now and later. So, um, so now is, you know, a, a good solution. Uh, the problem comes into play because a lot of good things, you know, the things that you do want, the things that are worth having, cannot actually be obtained now. Um, or, you know, if, if it seems like they can, often that's, that's just not true. Often that's somebody trying to trick you or somebody trying to sell you something. The only way that you can get the good thing that you want is to defer the gratification and to wait and to be strategic about how to obtain it. So, you know, I would say in, in general, that's less desirable, but it's something we got to do. So, um, so I think it is in some ways overriding our natural programming. And, um, you know, another factor that ties in, of course, is that sometimes long-term thinking requires asking questions that are a little uncomfortable because it might, it might lead to conclusions in the present we don't want. You know, am, am I in the right job? Am I in the right career? Am I spending my time on the right things? Am I married to the right person? I mean, you know, all these things where it's like, oh, do you actually want to know the answer to that? And frankly, sometimes people don't. So uh, it might not serve them in the long term uh, to be pursuing that same path. But sometimes the consequences of facing reality in the short term are so unpleasant that people would would uh, choose that by default. Mm. Yeah, just as you were talking, I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on, um, I think it's one thing for, for us to ask this question of ourselves personally, you know, maybe in our, um, 
in our in our non-work lives or even for ourselves of just you know thinking about um health or or decisions that impact us individually but then there's also decisions to where we have to think about like that affect other people and whether we're we're leaders or of a business or in some case you know a state country you know you can play this all the way up i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how how does the long game tease out differently as opposed to our individual decisions versus decisions that affect other people yeah it's it's true i mean you know going back to the long now talk that i did a few nights ago i mean they're they they actually it, it was it was sort of this like wild and crazy thing for them to bring me in because my long game that I'm talking about is actually super short for them because the timeline that they are thinking about that their framework is, is for 10,000 years. So basically in that context, any human life is like, you know, whatever, (laughs) but, but of course it matters enormously to us. So, uh, so on, you know, I, I think that one of the things that is true that we have to do Um, the poet John Keats, uh, had a phrase that he liked to use called negative capability, which he defined as the ability for your mind to hold two contradictory thoughts in mind simultaneously and basically not, (laughs) not go crazy from it. Like how can, how can you understand that multiple things can be true at the same time? And so on one hand, you know, we all do have to be 10,000 year thinkers. We all do have to think about well, how is what I'm doing impacting the planet or future generations or, you know, the extinction of species or things like that. And on the other hand, you know, it's, it's true. We are insignificant. You know, our lives are a speck and it's a big deal to us. So it's, it's all okay. Like that's, that's all uh, very, uh, very true. So I think, um, you know, we, we have to sort of train ourselves in that dual modality of thinking. Mm. What, uh, and, and maybe, maybe there is a difference, but do you see a difference between that, that 10,000 year mindset versus the, you know, the 80, 90 year mindset? Well, I think, I think that ultimately, you know, many of these things are aligned if, but you need to balance them out. Right. I mean, you could imagine a scenario where if, if I am totally in the 10,000 year camp where I say, you know, my life doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the, you know, is the successful continuity of civilization. You could pretty quickly get to a very abstemious place where it's like, wow, you know, I am like the most immoral person in the world for having my disposable coffee cup, like, you know, flagellate, flagellate. Um, you know, you, you get to a place where you would even feel bad about yourself doing anything. You'd feel bad about eating because you're taking resources. You'd feel bad about, you know, driving or going anywhere because you're consuming fossil fuels. Now, of course, this is not what the, the Long Now Foundation is actually advocating, but you could imagine a scenario where someone who was 100% in that mindset would actually have a fairly miserable and self-abnegating life because they they're just like, well, I don't matter. And so I think, you know, the important thing is to have some kind of a a sweet spot where you're recognizing, look, I mean, you don't want to be wanton. You don't want to be, you know, deliberately, you know, throwing plastic bottles in the ocean just because you can. But also it's true that people can do good things. And, 
you really can't do a lot of good things if you're like starving in a hut in a corner. Like if you want to, yeah. if you want to make a difference, if you, if you want to make a positive impact, you probably do need to, I don't know, go get an education. You probably do need to have independent thinking and build relationships and try to, you know, make a difference where you can. And those are things that do in fact consume resources, but we have to be willing to make those trade-offs. Mm. Uh, I, th I think another thing, and this is this is similarly related to that, um, some pro some projects or some goals that we have, they're not going to be able to be accomplished in our lifetime, but they might be able, they might not be ten thousand years either, um, or we might have to hand off the project uh, to somebody else in it. What are the what are the differences that you've seen, or maybe the different skills that are required versus? Uh, some long-term thinking that basically only involves you versus handing it off to somebody else. Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways this actually ties in with a previous book of mine called uh, Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. Because, you know, the, the biggest thing, of course, I mean, if I, if I'm thinking about my own lifespan or whatever, you know, I, okay, I get to make the choices, but if I'm thinking about a project that is going to require more than just my effort and perhaps might require more than just my lifetime. Obviously, you somehow need to convince other people that this is a good idea. You know, you can't um, force somebody to do something, especially after you're dead. <laughs> so you have to get them to believe in it and say, oh, actually, this is a good cause. Actually, this is something that is worth doing. So you really do need to um, think about and understand elements of influence and persuasion and getting people to share your worldview about what's important and how to approach it. Hmm. What are what are behaviors or um, disciplines that you see people who are focusing on the long game? What do they choose to do that short game people tend not to do? Well, I, I think that you know one of the the points that I make in the long game is that the necessary starting point actually is white space because. It's not that it it takes this enormous amount of time to do long, you know long term thinking or strategic thinking. It 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 doesn't really you know it's it's not like oh I have to spend you know forty hours a month doing long term thinking. It doesn't quite work that way. But what you do need to have is enough mental space to be able to ask the right questions. And so I think one key thing is that a lot of people are just like running around like a chicken with their head cut off, and so they don't. They don't give themselves, they don't allow themselves the time or the space to be asking the right questions. That's a piece of it. I think another element of it is really being clear both about what it is you want and recognizing that you have to be willing to pay a price in order to do it. You know, I mean, everybody would like to be fit, of course, right? But we also have to recognize that if that is going to happen, we, we will have to make choices. And, you know, I say in air quotes, suffer. It's not like acute <laughs> suffering, but it is certainly inconvenience. It's certainly um, missing out on other things in order to privilege and prioritize that. And I think at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, are you walking your talk? You say that X matters, are you living in a way that demonstrates to yourself and to the world that X is actually what matters? Or actually, is it Y 
that matters to you. And you're just not really fully admitting that. What are some indicators for you that help you kind of discern in your own life either uh, that you need more white space in your life? Well, I think, I mean, I, I would be willing to bet that the default for most professionals is that we probably all need more white yeah. space. I mean, literally where the terminology comes from is like, you know, looking at your calendar, you know, whether whether it's an electronic calendar or paper or whatever, like, is there any white space or is it is it like, well, nine o'clock's a meeting, nine thirty's a meeting, 10's a meeting, 11's a meeting, 12's a meeting, you know, it, it, is it all filled in with obligations? Because if it is, all you can really do is get through the day at that point. So I, I think that that's, um, that's just a bad sign. I mean, even a, vi a quick visual glance can probably tell you pretty effectively whether you're having enough white space. But I think the other thing is what I've come to realize is that you know, for, for many uh, knowledge workers, we're actually in a relatively fortunate position these days, which is that you know, for a lot of us, we actually like what we do. You know, we actually, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool, right? I mean, we're not like in some coal mine somewhere, like you're getting to do some genuinely interesting things, not everything, obviously, but, but a lot of what you do is genuinely interesting. But the problem with most of the people that I deal with is that they're still not happy. And the reason is that they are forced to do too much of the things that are interesting. And if you're forced mm -hmm. to do too much of it, you can't enjoy it. One scoop of ice cream is great. 25 will make you throw up. And for most of us, it's like, oh, you like ice cream? Have some ice cream. And that is really no longer fun. Mm. How do you deal with that tension whenever you find yourself going, yeah, I might, I might have uh, too many interesting things that I'm pursuing? <laughs> well, you know, a concept that I talk about in the long game is um, about saying no to good things. And this is actually incredibly painful because, you know, I mean, all of us are smart enough to say no to bad things, obviously, but saying no to good things feels <laughs> like, you know, I don't know, un-American somehow. It's like, no, but it's good. I, I've got to fit it in somehow. And the truth is that eventually, you know, I mean, you know, hashtag good problem to have, but eventually you reach a point where if you have been successful in laying the groundwork and doing the things that you know, that, you know, doing the right things to build up your career, your brand to the place that you want, you are eventually going to get more requests than even just physically you can fulfill. It just becomes structurally impossible. And so at that point, you have to learn to say no, even if the offer is a good one. Now, of course, if something is a great offer, then you still say yes to it. But it is extremely hard and awkward and unnatural to say no to good things, but we have to learn how to do it. What Can you give us some examples of what white space looks like for you or how that can look in our calendars? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, the way that I am thinking of it or defining it is, is at a very fundamental level, just uh, unstructured time. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's time when you are not working, um, you know, that's nice sometimes, but I'm not saying like, oh, you know, take two days off every, every work week or something like that. But what I am saying is that it's really hard, if not impossible, when you have back-to-back -back meetings that you're racing around to, whether it's physical racing or, you know, racing to, you know, log in for your Zoom calls, you 
you really can't get a lot of thinking done because everything is just like, well, oh my God, where's the login? Do I have my notes for that meeting? What did I need to cover? Oh, what's the follow-up? Oh, I've got to send him the report. And that's where your head is at. You're not able to tackle anything uh, bigger picture or more meaningful. You're just, you're just executing. You're just in execution mm-hmm. mode. And you know that's fine a little bit, but it can't really be the only way that we're doing things. So as I think about white space, a strategy that I use personally, there has been um, an, you know, a sort of influential essay written by Paul Graham, who's the founder of Y Combinator, which is an incubator in Silicon Valley. And he talks about uh, manager schedule versus maker schedule. And he, he, the way that he talks about it generally is about you know, people who have different roles in startups. You know, there's the makers, the coders who need lots of unstructured time to do their coding projects. And then the managers, of course, have meeting, meeting, meeting to move the project forward. But what I've come to discover is that for most of us, for most professionals, we actually in our jobs have to be both managers and makers. And so scheduling time so that you have at least one maker day in your work week is really important. What helps you like continue to remember the long game whenever, because as we've mentioned, you know, a lot of things push you towards the short term. Are there any practices that help you just, you know, keep the long game in mind? Well, I mean, there's always the lure of moral superiority. So that helps. Uh, (laughs) 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 But above and beyond that, uh, I would say that, you know, we, we do need to, you know, make sure that we're clear on, on our, on our North star, you know, what, what is it that we're aiming toward? The truth is if we're not aiming toward anything in particular, then, you know, kind of anything will do. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But for most of us, actually, we do have something we're aiming toward, you know, whether it's a, you know, what we just, what we want our lives to look like in general, maybe it's a professional outcome or a, promotion, maybe you want to start your own business one day or, you know, whatever it is, but we actually do have some particular ambition. And so just making sure that on a regular basis, we are circling back to that and reminding ourselves of how the work that we're doing, especially the hard work, especially the kind of unrewarded or under-rewarded work, how that lines up with the ultimate goal is important. I mean, any management textbook, you know, will say, Hey, you know, people get bored putting widgets together. You have to remind them why they're putting the widgets together. And the truth is, even if you're managing yourself, that's true because it becomes very easy to forget why you're doing the widget. And it's just like, Oh my God, why am I doing this thing? And it sucks and blah, 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 blah. And you have to consciously override that and say, no, 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 no. This is because it's going to get you to this place. And when you're at that place, that means that you're halfway to this other place that you really want to be. It's like, oh, right. That's that's why I'm doing that. Uh, one of the ideas that really stood out to me from going through the book is uh, you talk about short-term networking versus long-term relationship building. Can you kind of tease that out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in the long game, I do talk a lot about relationships and connections, because, you know, if you want to accomplish almost anything meaningful, other people are probably going to be involved in in one way or another. But 
there's a lot of people who don't like networking, who explicitly say, oh, I hate that. I, you know, I don't want to have to do that. And the reason is that I think in many ways they are confusing networking with a very specific type of networking, which is short-term transactional networking, where you know, you're basically like, I want a thing. He can get me that thing. I guess I'll have to make friends. And it's, you know, just very Machiavellian and, you know, like no sensible person who's not a sociopath wants to be like that. It feels bad. It feels weird. But because they kind of misunderstand the nature of networking, they assume, oh, well, that's what I have to do. I have to contort myself into that. And so they either opt out or they try it, but then they feel bad about themselves. And, you know, I, I wanted to make it clear, like, that's right. You should feel bad about it because that's not how it's done. That's, that's, not, that's not what anybody wants you to do. No, you don't, it feels weird to do it. And it feels even worse to be on the receiving end of it. So uh, I think that's really important to get clear on. What we need to do is to have a long-term frame with relationships. No, nobody wants to be used. So ultimately, we need to be thinking more about how can you develop friendships, actual genuine friendships with people that you find interesting. Now, they might be able to help you with something at some point, but uh, you might also be able to help them. You know, that's, that's conceivable too. But the reason you develop the relationship is because you find the person interesting and you enjoy them, not because of a particular thing that you could get out of it. And so in order to reinforce that even further, I created a, a kind of rule that I share in the long game, which is uh, no asks for a year, where I suggest that people uh, studiously avoid asking their new friend or contact for any politically sensitive ask for at least a year so that they understand that you're not after them for a particular outcome. And also so that you don't feel internal pressure around it. You just take that off the table and you stop worrying about it. And instead you focus on getting to know them. Uh, one of the quotes that you have in the book is from uh, is from Jeff Bezos, and he talks about uh, the seven year horizon in there, which really got me thinking. I want to and I want to read the quote just to provide context, and then I want to get some of your thoughts on it. But he says, uh, "To gain notice in your field, it often takes two to three years of effort before you see any results. At that point, you'll often start to see raindrops, small intermediate signs of progress. To become a recognized expert." It often takes at least five years of consistent effort. If everything you do needs to work on a three-year time horizon, then you're competing against a lot of people. But if you're willing to invest on a seven-year time horizon, you're now competing against a fraction of those people because very few companies are willing to do that. Just by lengthening the time horizon, you can engage in endeavors that you could never otherwise pursue. And yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So just to, just to clarify, um, Jeff Bezos specifically was talking about um, Amazon and their, their horizon that he said that most of their competitors were only willing to invest on a three-year horizon, meaning if the investment wouldn't pay off within three years, they wouldn't even attempt it. Whereas mm -hmm. for Amazon, they could afford to wait seven years for profitability. And that's how they're able to do these, these big things like you know, Amazon Prime or Amazon Web Services, which have become juggernauts. Um, so it, uh, so he, he hasn't really weighed in on the question of yeah. uh, becoming a yeah. recognized expert. That's sort of more my frame. But yeah. uh, I, just to, to clarify for folks, but, but I, I think that the, the, the 
I really saw a lot of parallels, which is why I wanted to talk about Amazon and yeah. the work that they've done. Because the, the truth is, it is a very challenging process during that time when you are putting in the two or three or five years worth of labor to try to get your ideas out there. And it feels like, you know, nothing's happening. Like, like, okay, I had five subscribers to my blog and two years later I have 17. Yay. <laughs> you know, it just like feels like, wow, am I wasting all of my time? I'm just not getting anywhere. And a lot of people quite understandably give up at that point, but it's really important to recognize that for a lot of these things, the growth is extremely slow in the beginning, but then speeds up and can sometimes become exponential as you gain momentum. And one, if you actually are willing to endure that, which most people are not, but if you are willing to endure the sense that, wow, this is not paying off, and I don't know when, and I don't know if it will pay off. This is kind of a terrible feeling because you're rolling the dice with your time, with your energy, with your effort. But if you're willing to endure that and you get through to the other side, it actually has remarkable benefits because since most people are not willing to do it, there's very little competition on the other side. And you're able to oftentimes notch pretty big wins as Amazon did and as um, many thought leaders have done. Yeah, and, and I want to go back to uh, what you were mentioning, you know, about the the two to three years, you know, you're just seeing a little bit of raindrops and all of that stuff. Are there different, like, types of skills that were, are required throughout the, the process for that? Well, so I've spent really the past decade or so trying to understand the nature of what it takes to become a recognized expert in one's field. And what I've come to realize is that there are three key components. There's content creation, there's social proof, and there's network. And I will just mention for, for anyone who's interested, I, I have a free uh, scored self-assessment that people can take for free. Uh, you can get it at doryclark.com slash toolkit. Uh, it'll actually give you a score on the three elements to sort of show you where you might be best served putting your emphasis. But the basic idea is it, Number one, you do need to have all three elements. Otherwise, it becomes exceedingly challenging. And number two, a problem that we have, like a, a lot of times people who are pretty skilled professionals will come to me, they'll be frustrated. They'll be like, I've been working so hard and it's not working and blah, blah, blah. And the truth is they have been working hard. That is correct. But the problem is that typically they have been working hard at one of the things, like their favorite thing, maybe two, but they've usually been ignoring the third. And so that becomes the point where it's like, okay, well, you're, you know, the weakest link is going to bring you down, fella. So you got you to work on the other one. But very briefly, content creation is about sharing your ideas publicly so that other people know what your ideas are. Social proof is ensuring that you are perceived as being credible by other people so that they are willing to listen to what you have to say. And then your network, of course, is the people who are amplifying your message um, willing to share it, helping you hone your ideas, etc. cetera. Uh, another thing that I want to uh, ask you about um, is you talk about three habits of long-term thinkers and you talk about uh, independence, curiosity, and resilience. And um, I imagine just as you were saying with, uh, with becoming an expert, there's probably at least one of those areas to where um, we, we are not good at, we are not natural at. Um, I would love your thoughts on if, if we aren't good in one of those areas, what's maybe like a step that we can do to become better at those things? 
Yes, yes. So being a, a successful long-term thinker does involve a, a lot of these elements because it, it's kind of countercultural in a lot of ways, right? Um, it, it is the kind of thing that if, if you are persisting for a fairly long period of time at a thing that is not generating immediate results, other people are going to begin to scratch their head a little bit and say, uh, why are you still doing this? And they're, they're going to start pushing you and it likely will start sowing doubts in you as well. And that's a very hard thing to resist. And so the reason I, I picked these three, um, independence, of course, is because you have to be willing to, to not listen to those voices, you know, sort of march to your own drummer. Curiosity is even just, just to the outset, the kind of first uh, point is that you have to be interested and willing to say, hmm, well, maybe, maybe there's a new way this could be done, or maybe there's a better way that this could be done. You know, let me explore it. Uh, and then resilience is that it is almost inevitable that with any meaningful project of a long enough duration, it probably will not go the way that you think. I mean, in fact, it's statistically more likely that it won't go the way you imagine as compared to, oh, it will play out exactly as you imagine. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people, they somehow take it as like a referendum, like, wow, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Um, but that's actually not true. It's just that, you know, we can't really predict the future. And there's a lot of ways that things can play out. It doesn't mean that, you know, God doesn't intend it. Uh, it just means okay, you couldn't quite see, you know, the pandemic coming or whatever. So, um, so you do need to have those elements. So how do you, how do you work on them? How do you strengthen them? I mean, I think part of it is, um, it, it's, it's largely a willingness to buck convention and just, to, to be willing to live with the fact that other people might think you are wrong and sometimes for extended periods of time. That, that's just, that's not easy um, because evolutionarily, of course, humans like to stick together and we like it when other people are, you know, giving us lots of approbation and praise, but um, we have to be willing to take a chance and we have to be willing to be wrong because sometimes they will be right, uh, which is infuriating, but true. Um, so I, I think that, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily easy, but a lens that I like to use is, you know, at the end of the day, what kind of person do you want to be? And I think that for many of us, what we would aspire to be is the kind of person that is not swayed by outside perspectives, but is willing to follow our own judgment and, you know, a sort of Thoreauian transcendentalist <laughs> viewpoint, I think is, is, is at least intellectually appealing to many of us. And I, I think that, um, the more we can lean into that, probably the more satisfied we'll be. Well, I got one other question that I want to ask you, but before that, um, uh, I always love asking, is there anything that we, I know we've covered a lot, uh, in the long game, but is there anything just top of mind that you've been thinking about, uh, pertaining to this or anything else that's like, yeah, I want to make sure that I mention this. Oh man, I think this has been wide ranging, Caleb. I love it. Thank you. No, this is great. Okay. The last thing I want to ask you is, uh, and, and, and I think it ties back to a little bit of what you were just saying about, um, you know, uh, our, our younger selves or the person that we want to become. And I would love to ask you, 
what would you tell a younger Dory about the long game that um, that you didn't know before? Yeah, well, I, I think that there have been a number of instances in my professional life where something that I perceived as being a door that was closed actually was really only temporary. Um, it was, you know, either the door wasn't really closed, it was just a jar, or, you know, maybe, okay, the door was closed, but you, you know, oh, look, the window's open. Um, so I think that for me, a key part of the long game, we, despite our theoretical valorization of failure, you know, in our culture, you know, oh, fail fast, yay. Um, you know, most of us understandably don't like to fail. And I think that we're actually too quick to call something a failure. Things are not a failure until you accept them as a failure and therefore stop trying. Uh, otherwise, there's actually a lot of ways to get in. And so I think about, you know, for me, an early quote unquote failure was I got turned down by all the PhD programs that I applied to. And so I had thought I wanted to be a university professor. And I was like, well, I guess that's not going to happen because I, you know, didn't get into these doctoral programs. But as it as it happens, um, you don't actually need a PhD to be a university professor. And uh, I managed through other creative means, literally within a handful of years, you know, I got, it was 1999, I got turned down by all of the doctoral programs I applied to. And by 2003, I was teaching a course at Tufts University, which is, you know, actually a pretty good school. Uh, so I had managed to find a way into doing what I wanted to do. I mean, now for you know, uh, close to a decade, I've been teaching at uh, Duke's Business School, which is one of the top 10 in the country. Uh, I teach for Columbia as well. And, you know, I don't have, I don't have any formal credentials, uh, besides a theology degree. So, uh, so things are possible that we don't always think are possible. Hmm, I didn't know that you had a theology degree. That's intriguing. What led you to that? Oh, man, you know, I, uh, I would say two, the two things that led me to that, number one, is I have always just been interested in existential issues and questions yeah. about how we should live our lives. And the second was that I was very interested uh, in college in political advocacy, and I wanted to understand uh, the, the, the sort of Christian right fundamentalism uh, better so that I could uh, understand exactly what was going on under the hood of American politics. Have you seen, has that, I mean, I, I, this might be a little bit of a leaning question, but I imagine that had to have infect, like affected how you approach uh, like things even today. Well, I, I think that in many ways, something that uh, took me a while to perceive really is that the work that I do today in the business sphere, in the corporate sphere it, it may not be a straight line exactly to mm -hmm. my study of theology, but it, it actually is quite related in the sense that in our modern kind of, you know, secular-ish society, work really is, I think, for many people, the primary locus through which they find their sense of meaning and purpose. And so understanding that and understanding how to do it better, how to do it more effectively, um, I think actually is, uh, in some ways, a kind of modern spiritual quest. Yeah. Cool. Well, Dory, I know that people are going to want to, you know, pick up the book, keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? 
Yeah, Caleb, thank you so much. Uh, the book again is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And folks can uh, pick it up in all kinds of online bookstores uh, and you know some real world ones as well. Uh, but additionally, I'll mention that there's a free resource, which is the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. And people can get that for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for uh, doing the work of just creating this book as well. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. So here's a couple of things that as it pertains to the long game thinking long term that I've been thinking about recently. I think one is I've been trying to add a lot more reflection to my life and including more time at, um, it is typically at the beginning of each day, but looking back over the previous day and thinking about what bothered me, you know, what, uh, what created emotional tension in me or, uh, just some of the things that have, uh, stood out to me from the previous day and, uh, also having a time each week to where I look ahead and I, um, and I plan out what's uh, coming over the next couple of weeks and look back as well, because I just found myself just reacting too much to what was happening in the moment. And, and I just didn't like that type of life. And so I changed, I changed it. And I got back to some of the things that have uh, helped me in the past that I had gone away from just because life was too busy and I didn't make adjustments. And the other one is, uh, with my health of well, and not that necessarily, you know, anything is going bad, but trying to think in the long game that I want to be around for as long as possible to be with the people that I love. And, uh, and I, I love some of the work that I get to do. And so just thinking about it in terms of, of, um, that and you know it makes me think of you know andy stanley uh i'm pretty sure it was andy who was the first one that i heard him say i know i've heard him say it before um it just makes me think of the idea of working on it instead of in it which is always good to do you know you work uh on the business to figure out how things are going what can you do uh better instead of focusing on you know the day-to-day -day type of stuff or the week-to-week -week stuff or um, you know, and, uh, you know, for me working at church, the Sunday to Sunday stuff and taking a look back and, and just asking the, the bigger questions of, is this really working? Are we, um, are we experiencing or getting the results that we hope to? And I think that's good for us to do for us in our own lives as well is to work on ourselves and not, uh, you know, as, uh, as my friend Todd was telling me not just recently, not just staying on the treadmill of life, but looking back and reflecting and making the necessary changes that we want um, in order to experience more of the life that we want. So uh, that's a couple of things. And so, you know, adding those practices, you know, a couple for me, as I mentioned, where the reflecting, uh, reading slash learning is a big one for me as well and uh exercise and 
movement and uh, stretching is another one that I am learning uh, and having to add a little bit more to as well. So that's some of the stuff that, um, that I've been thinking about in terms of the long game and taking the long view and uh, and I think I'm just realizing more and more how things are set up for the short term for uh for the short game and i want to have a long game mindset so that's some of the things that have stand out out to me i would love to hear from you and what stood out to you from this interview or whether you have uh ideas or subjects that you would love us to cover on the podcast uh, guests that you would love uh, for us to re reach out to and see if we could possibly make that happen as well. The, and the best way to do that, to let me know, is reaching out via Learner's Corner Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating and write a review of the episode as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Dory for being on the episode as well and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the show my name is kayla mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing <laughs>